Welcome to today's webinar compiled and produced by the team at biznews.com. Well, I look forward to a fascinating hour. We've got South Africa's most famous stock, I think you could call it. Certainly the one that uh, most people pay plenty of attention to, the CEO Fleetwood Frobler, who uh, celebrates the one-year anniversary at the end of the week. Isn't that something? That is correct. And uh, not only uh, my anniversary, we had the recent Sussel 70th year anniversary, which is also very heartening to be part of uh, such a, a long-standing major force industrial company of South Africa. Well, phenomenal. We're going to be picking up with uh, Fleetwood in, in about 15 minutes' time. But first, uh, our very own, very famous market watcher, David Shapiro. And of course, uh, just as famous, Pit Fulion, uh, who is the value investor par excellence here in South Africa. Uh, Pete, I couldn't ask a, a better person, and thank you for wearing the blue today. I know what's gone into David. He didn't get the memo, obviously. This is Sassel blue today. So we've got to look at he's, it from he's a. Definitely not wearing, he's definitely not wearing Arsenal red today. Uh -huh. Okay. But this isn't Man City blue either, David. This is, uh, this is the I West Ham. swear words in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the two of you, nice to have you in the in in the studio uh, remotely. Fleetwood Krobler is here in the studio with me, as you heard a moment ago. Uh, we will be picking up on that uh, in due course. But first of all, let's get organized as far as the tech is concerned. Stuart Lohman, our GM, is uh, always behind the controls, Stu. Do you want to help us to make sure that we know everyone's actually hearing this and uh, that they can pose their questions? Excellent. Thanks, Eric, and welcome all. Uh, just quickly, if you can see the three gentlemen's faces on the screen and hear my voice with a presentation underneath, can you just give us a high five, please? There's a high five button on the control panel. There we go. Alec, got some high fives coming through, which is good. I hope the sound is loud and clear. Alec can lift it a bit, so just let us know if it is a bit soft. That's all good there, Alec. And as Alec mentioned in the intro, we do like to keep it conversational. There's a little questions box on that same control panel. If you please put your questions in there. I see you've got one already, Alec, which is good to see. Please put them in there, and then Alec can pass them on as he goes through the hour discussion. But enjoy all. Thanks, Stu. And I'm doubtless there'll be plenty of questions coming through, so uh, please do post them early. Gents, Sassel's a company that we know very well on this program. We've uh, certainly here at BizNews, we've covered it well. We bought it into our portfolio when it was 28 Rand. We sold it because day traders apparently were, were playing with the price at 145. It's now at about 101. Pete Fulion, you are the uh, Mr. Value Investor here in South Africa. Are you getting excited yet? Uh, the short answer is no, I'm not, uh, Alec. Um, I I think um, the business has a long way to go to show that it can reverse the massive mistakes it's made over the past 20 years, and I, I don't see any evidence of that yet. Okay, well, I'm hoping that our guest today is uh, going to be able to answer those and other questions. Uh, Dave, your side? I'm, I'm with Pete there, um, just watching, <laughs> watching what happens. And I think we've got quite a few questions for Fleetwood. Um, on, yeah. on what Pitt said has been uh, a very troublesome few years. And, you know, the questions are going to be around how did 
how does this happen to a company which uh, Fleetwood said, you know, he's been serving so proudly for um, a number of years, a 70-year-old company, which was um, ahead, uh, you know, had had such wonderful IP. Um, yes, admittedly, it borrowed it, it, it used uh, intellectual property and, uh, um, you know, it, it, it borrowed it. But I mean, South Africa, Sassel has always been a very proudly South African company and a company that we have um, always admired. So I think those are the kind of questions we will pose. Plus, where Fleetwood sees, um, you know, the, the oil price and other issues uh, in the months ahead or in the years ahead, particularly with a very, very sensitive election taking place now where um, those, you know, fossil fuels are at the center of the discussions. Lots to pick up a little later. Dave, when you look back at the past week, mm -hmm. Uh, as we usually do, we have a look at the main themes on the JSE before we talk to our CEO. What stands out for you? It's been a very interesting week, and I'm puzzled, and maybe Pitt can help me on this one, because what we've seen, even though the international stocks have been tracking sideways and nothing much there, you know, most of those markets are range-bound at the moment, what has happened on the local market is there's been a flurry for retailers and also a massive demand for banks and insurance companies to a point where they've been driven up uh, incredibly high. Volumes on the JSC are particularly low. There's no big volumes going through, but relative to the rest of the market, you know, retailers um, and banks and insurers have, uh, have, have been very strong. Yeah. And there are a few fund managers out there saying, you know, buy SA Inc. It's time to buy SA Inc. And uh, I think d driving it up, my personal view is I, I'm not quite sure this is the time. I'm not challenging valuations. I'm not challenging that the market's low. But what I am challenging is perhaps the aggression with which they're coming into the market and driving prices up. Pitt, uh, I hope yeah. you're going to be on the different side of the fence to David because somebody has to be excited about SA Inc. <laughs> It seems David and I agree on a lot of things today. I, I have to say, I'll, I'll preface my agreement with, with, with David by saying that I am excited about SA Inc. Um, I think uh, there are some really wonderful, good quality businesses there that are trading at very low multiples on low earnings, which is always a classic setup. Uh, I do think it's possibly too early, uh, but these things always happen. You know, the market is a wonderful discounting mechanism. It always sees a future way before people like myself or other analysts see the future. Um, so the market is very good with that. Uh, so is this the start of something or not? I don't know. I can't profess to, to say this is the start of the value resurgence. I do know that there will be a resurgence of value at some point in the future, whether it's today or next week or next month. And I do think that investors would be responsible to allocate at least a portion of their portfolio, not not the bulk of it, not all of it, but at least a portion of the portfolio to some sort of uh, value exposure in South Africa, because that is where the big returns lie in the future somewhere. Uh, again, I don't know when that's going to happen, but it, it is going to happen. And, well, and, and, and I think, by the way, what, what happened last week is an inkling of what can happen when the stars align. And the stars are not aligned at this point, but it shows you a glimpse of what can happen when the stars align. Just a, just a couple of things before we talk about all things Sassel. I went into any telltale outlet uh, a week or so ago to buy tiles. And there was an incredibly limited op uh, range available. 
because it's almost like when people have stayed at home, they've realized that they needed to do home improvements. We know that the new market or new house market is dead. We know that to sell a house now, you've got to have rocks in your heads because only the buyers are benefiting. And Iteltile have never seen these kind of volumes before, I was told, uh, by the guy. And it's, it's their, yeah. their main uh, area. Surely, if you if you start extrapolating that to other parts of the economy, the DIY went to build his warehouse, same thing. Queues out the, out the door. Now, these are always anecdotal. And you can never really make an assessment until you see the actual numbers. But you almost get a feeling that, South Africa is coming back to life, but maybe in a different way. There's no doubt. It speaks to cash build and, and in, the, in the housing market as well. It's yes, in the high end of the market is dead. There's nothing. But in the lower end of the market, there is a lot of trade happening. There's a lot of demand. There's a lot of transactions taking place. I'm talking about the, you know, the 500,000 Rand to one and a half million Rand type of market. The transactions are happening and there is demand. I think the decline in interest rates have helped that market tremendously. It made things much more affordable. Because remember, you know, if you're buying a million rand house, a 3% cut in interest rates makes a huge difference in your, in your bond repayment. Because you're buying that house basically 100% on debt. So, so that, um, that market is moving. There are things happening there. And the same on DIY, cash flow, those sort of things. Um, uh, it, it's a part of the market that us as analysts, um, aren't very familiar with because we don't live in that world. We don't, uh, in a, but it's a different world that is alive mm -hmm. and I wouldn't say it's thriving, but transactions are happening and economic activity is happening. David, just mm -hmm. before we go on, I've got tomorrow the Biz News Portfolio update and one of the big question marks I'm sure is going to be around Wilson Bailey. Now, we bought Wilson Bailey, WBHO, being the into the portfolio as being the blue chip of South African construction on the view that exactly what Cyril Ramaphosa said uh, about the resurgence in the economy would be said. So he said it, but the Wilson Bailey share price went down. So what's happening? They don't, doesn't, I, look, don't people believe? I, I think they're making, yeah, they're making money in Australia. And I think that's where their main focus is. I think locally, we haven't seen the spend yet in infrastructure. I think those projects will take place, and it's one of the main features of the development plan is to create those funds. And look, there's, there's a point I must make with regard to that. You know, when you start an infrastructure fund, it falls under alternative investments, which is in a section in Regulation 28. So a pension fund can only put around about 5% of their investment in a infrastructure type fund, you know, that's built like that. So I think a lot of things have to be done to actually open up uh, the economy to allow those kind of investments uh, to be made and for pension funds to get into them. But I think uh, if that does happen, if we do get pension funds going into infrastructure funds, I think then it could make a big difference and uh, to companies like uh, Wilson Bailey. You know, we saw, we see what's happening with companies like PPC. You know, I think PPC was started in, what, 1926, and to see where it is at the moment is really a tragedy and uh, exposes and uh, symbolic of where South Africa is on the development side. I, I, I do think if I can interject there, David, I'm not sure that uh, where PPC is, is, is nat a natural reflection of where South Africa is. I think it's a reflection of very poor financial management, taking on too much debt to expand into Africa. That's the reflection of PPC, because there's another company called Afrimat, 
which mm. supplies building materials and other uh, things into the construction industry, and they are doing very, very well. So I would, I would rather use AFRIMAT to reflect where South Africa is than PPC. PPC, like Sassel, I think finance themselves irresponsibly and find themselves in a hole because of that, not because of the country or anything else. It's irresponsible financing that it caused and irresponsible financing of irresponsible projects. That is why PPC and Sassel find themselves where they are today. Tell Fleetwood I'll be the good guy, Pitt can be the bad guy, okay? Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> what do you think about that? The good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I'm pretty sure I know who the ugly is, but uh, I, think, I think it's all relative, yes. So let's, uh, let's see. <laughs> well, uh, you, you, have, uh, you have our star uh, CEO in studio today. I'm just getting the, um, the camera up. I hope I don't have to ask Stuart. I probably am going to have to ask Stuart to to sneak in uh, to to sort those uh, the camera out. But maybe uh, Pitt, you are the man who's uh, who's already thrown a, a, a lobbed a couple of hand grenades in absentia to uh, Fleetwood Robler, the CEO of Sassel, who's there on screen. Do you want to kick off with the first question? Yeah. So, so I think the key to to understanding Sassel is to understand the capital allocation policies over the past 20 years, why they have been so pro-cyclical. In other words, every time something is doing well, they invest a lot of money into it. And as soon as things go backwards, they have to sell into really bad markets. And that's a guaranteed way to destroy capital. And that's what uh, Sassel has been doing consistently for the past 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, the return on equity, or return on investor capital, was over 20% consistently year after year after year. And today it's negative, but say two years ago, it was running at two, three, four percent. So the returns on capital have just been declining year after year after year as more and more capital has been put into, uh, I think, projects with very poor payoffs. Uh, so, so I think that is the crux of this asshole investment argument. Is that going to change? And if so, why and how is it going to change? Thank you, Pete. And I think I can't disagree with you that capital allocation lies at the heart of the success that we need to to get right. And so when we made this uh, big decision to invest in Louisiana and Lake Charles in 2014, uh, we we really had a big ambition. The the time was conducive. We had, you know, the access to a lot of competitive areas which we evaluated at that time. Um, and and we made a decision. Now I'm not going to reflect on the decision. That's what was made at that time. So, but to your point, at our Capital Markets Day in 2017, I think we were very clear that we will not, never again, make a big investment decision like that on our own, um, and see that we um, that we have to bring balance in this capital allocation. So what we have said to the market at that time is that first of all. Never again a big capital project like that in the billions. That's what we've already promised, and I will uh, live up to that under my watch. The second thing is that we will follow a very strict capital allocation framework, and that we are committed to since 2017, and it will continue as we go forward. It is about uh, not making these big capital investments. It is about getting the balance right to say, where does capital go first? First, you need to make sure that it goes into the right sustenance and uh, keeping your assets in good nick. Then it's about making sure that you've got a proper dividend that your shareholders expect. 
Secondly, if, if, if there are any um, rest of the cash flow available for discretionary spend, you need to look at how can you best apply that. We have um, come to the conclusion that at that time you will look at what is available for shares, share buyback. Is that a better place to put the capital compared to put it into new any investment uh, projects that you do have? And, and I think that's the framework in which we will operate and live going forward. So we will live within our means, first of all, and then secondly, make sure that we follow this very strict capital allocation framework, which is at the heart of the success going forward. Okay, I'm just muting Pitch because someone's giving him a bit of a hard time on the side, or maybe uh, adding uh, additional questions to him. How long have you been with Cecil? So I, I, I actually started as a bursar in 1984 with Cecil, and uh, I had a very interesting career through the various operating entities, spent about nine years of my tenure outside South Africa, of which the last since 2010, uh, on and off about seven years in Germany. And uh, I was running the capital, um, you know, um, development and implementation in the late um, 2000s, 2007, 8, then moved on to the business side. I uh, became the managing director of our elephants and surfactants business in Europe. Spend uh, 2010 to 2014 there. Came back to South Africa leading the global chemicals business. And then in 17, uh, went back to, to Europe to manage the portfolio from there. Uh, in the sense, logistically, 80% of my business partners and customers are outside of South Africa. And uh, Europe being very central between the Far East, Europe, and uh, the US really brought me into to that position. And then I returned to South Africa officially uh, getting into this job one November, and I moved my family back in February of this year, back here to Johannesburg. What did November. they think about coming home? So I think my, my family is, is quite... Uh, solid and uh, passionate South Africans. So we all along uh, knew that one day we have to to return to South Africa and I'm looking forward to um, to play my role in South Africa and what this company and the country needs. Nice uh, thumbnail sketch of the CEO who's been in the hot seat, David, as we heard uh, for one year at the end of this year. Um, also head of chemicals, so you'll know all about Lake Charles, which I'm sure is going to be the, the focus of, of perhaps your first question. <laughs> I, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, Fleetwood, at one stage, uh, I think Cecil wanted to sell the olivants and surf, what's a surf, I can never get those names right. Do yeah. yeah, at one stage fact. it was on the it was on the sales block and I think you couldn't sell it and you say, okay, we're going to make it uh, work, which has been okay. I think the question that I want to ask and following on from Pitt, what was the attraction of Lake Charles? I mean, you're moving away from what was really a, a gas to liquids, uh, sorry, or a coal to liquids um, or coal to gas to what is a polyethylene part. You know, what was the attractor? What was the um, desire to go into this part of the country? You know, I, I, that's, that's, you know, we, we're looking at what was the decision, because if you look at all the other decisions that Sassel had made, despite what Pitt says, I mean, Secunda 1, Secunda 2, the original plant, were all done perfectly and, um, you know, uh, were done very, very well. I mean, you had the experience in buying plants and doing, and building plants. But what was the attraction of Lake Charles in a very yeah. competitive industry? 
I think I think if you if you start off, David, uh, first of all, um, when we acquired the Contia business in 2001, we bought uh, uh, a number of global assets um, that we that we put in our fold. And and as we know that the growth in terms of more coal to liquid plants are really um, cash or, or capex prohibitive, you you have to pay quite a, a a huge sum of money to to replicate any means of, of what we've got in Secunda. Not only that, I think if you look at the the coal to fuels footprint from a greenhouse gas emission point of view, it it was not um, considered wise to invest further in that uh, just because of the the whole um, pressure that's developing, rightfully so, that we need to to see how we can uh, decarbonize the economy. So those two things made it almost prohibitive to grow shareholder value in more of the same that we had. We also resolved, um, and that was only in 17, very clearly that we will not invest in any greenfield uh, gas to liquids plants because we believe, Sassel, that the sunset of the oil industry is starting to appear on the horizon. Is it 2030? Is it 2040? At some stage, the decline of, of liquid fuels will stare us in the face. And lately, you see some of the majors announcing um, that this is in in the making. Uh, the timing, of course, would have to be calibrated still. Uh, but suffice to say, we are part of that world. And so when we look at what we can grow in, we, we considered a number of options. And the first is where we have a right to succeed. So when I look at our uh, chemicals business, um, we've got a very, very good performance chemicals business. We've got a solid base chemicals business in South Africa where we do currently polyethylene and polypropylene. Yes, it is coming out of the feedstock of uh, Fisher Trops and coal derived and gas. But the point is we have been in those markets over 30 years. We, we have been very successful in um, in the marketplace with our performance chemicals. So when you put all of that into the basket in the view of 2013, 2014, when that decision was made, first, we are present in Lake Charles. Secondly, we are running a ethylene cracker with ethane feedstock. The advent of shale gas opened up a huge opportunity to make use of abundant uh, ethane feedstock which is the lowest cost feedstock for any ethylene derived product. And we, we saw that as a, as a good opportunity. So we had access to technology, all the plants that we built in Lake Charles, the LL and the LD are similar technologies we practice in South Africa. So the licensed source are the same type of plants we do today in South Africa. So we just had the, the latest and the scale plants that uh, technology developed into over the period till 2016 when we made that decision. We, as I say, we had access to markets. We had the know-how how to operate these plants. We've been for 30 years and more in Lake Charles for the establishment there already. We built on the performance chemical side as well in terms of the investments we made there into uh, the alcohols, the Ziegler, the Goubet and the surfactants or the ethoxylation. We built a new ETO or um, uh, uh, ethylene oxide and MEG plant. Previously, we just told our ethylene in Lake Charles for others to make the EO. We brought it back and we reacted with our, our, our alcohols that we made and we've got the ethoxylates, which is really 
going into cleaning applications and other specialty um, niche application uh, for, for our customers. But the point is, at that time, we, we had the right to succeed because of feedstock, access to technology, uh, access to markets, and we've been present in the site. So the scale of the project, I think that is the questionable thing, if I reflect honestly at that time. Could we have done better by partnering from day one and, and utilizing, focusing more on our specialty chemicals or the performance chemicals side? Yes, maybe in hindsight, that is what we should have done. But as we've said, um, in 17, we've already resolved, we will never again build a big project like that without considering a partnership. But what we've got today and looking at the performance chemical side of the business, we believe still there's a right to succeed and that we will get good benefit from that investment that we've made and that the growth pros prospects that that uh, site offers us in growing in specialty chemicals is unparalleled. So that's a good story. Uh, but this is not a good story, as you see on the screen. With the Cecil market cap back to where it was, sure, 15, 16 years ago. So the market has really, really punished you. And people like uh, like Pete Fulun are now saying that you never get, sorry, Pete, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, from what I heard from you, you'd say that you're staying away from these guys because that track record that you can see on the screen there, the market cap growing with a, with a couple of peaks, is not uh, uh, repeatable. But but just just help me out here, Pete. When you look at this, and you see the the uh, the way that the value has been destroyed, it does look like a one-off, almost like a perfect storm against Sassel. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I, I do disagree with that. I, I think the market took a while to realize what was happening within Sassel. But if you look at the return on equity of Sassel over the past 20 years, since since your start started in 2000, it has been consistently declining with one or two bumps when the... Pete, we just lost you a moment momentarily. Still uh, we still... We're still... We've just lost you for a for a few minutes, Pitt. Can you hear me? Uh, let's just see if we can get we can see if we can get you back. But I think that's that's it's the, the 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 nub of what you said there um, is what we need to address. So maybe I can reflect on that, uh, Alec. Please so do. can can we go ahead? Please. So so what what yeah. Pitt says is. Um, is of course from the lens that he looks into it, it is quite observable what happened, and I think there's no, no, uh, but that's what happened. But where I look at it, when we made the, the update on Lake Charles in terms of where we want to to get the the project going and how we're going to deliver that, and I'm talking now about last year around February May, we went to market and said, look. This project that we have approved for 8.9 billion US dollars, and I want to make sure that our our people listening to this podcast understand that we, the project was not approved for 8.1 billion. We all along said it's 8.1 billion plus infrastructure, which brought it to 8.9 billion US dollars. And that amount increased as we announced to last year by about 45% to the range of 12.6 to 12.9. Today, as we sit here, we're going to deliver that project for the 12.8 slap bang almost in the middle of that range and and that's that's what we're going to deliver it at so i recall 
that's what we said to the market. I came into the job, my first road show in February, we were again going, talking to our investors in London and, and New York and uh, all the other places, Johannesburg and Cape Town. And we were getting to the cash inflection point where we're going to generate more money from from the products we sell on LCCP compared to the capital we spend. That that did take place in February. And lo and behold, in March, I was still um, in, in Europe when we uh, saw the drastic rise of COVID. The lockdowns were imminent. Oil price were getting jittery. And then oil price fell to below almost to zero or below 20. It was an unprecedented event. So we were living in that world and at that time, it was peak gearing because of cash inflection just turning. And then COVID happened. So I, I reflect on this and I say, look, we, we are the, the creators of our own destiny and that we had a very highly leveraged balance, balance sheet at the time. We were turning the ship. We were delivering the project. We were at the point where we're going to get the returns going to keep our balance sheet intact. At that time, we were not going for a a very a strained balance sheet. We were managing it through a very choppy seas at that time, of course, but we had solid plans how to deliver that. And then COVID happened and oil price um, went to the time uh, almost to zero and, and below 20 and in the 30s. So we as management looked at this and said, what do we do? We had to make very decisive decisions and we took decisive decisions in March. On the 17th of March, we said to the market, look, we can't admire this. We need to do something, and we do something drastic. We announced uh, $1 billion cash-saving measures, which we executed and delivered within four months from March to the end of our financial year, which was the end of June, which was actually almost when you look at that, you say, how did you guys deliver that? But we did. We announced the further billion dollars uh, of savings, cash flow savings that we will deliver in this year. And as we sit here, we're on track to deliver that. We also said we are going to get a sustainable $45 oil world that we look at going forward. So the days of a $50, $60, $70, $80 oil world is gone. We'll have to get fit and stay relevant in that, um, in that sense. So all the savings that we have announced we had to devise plans how to make it saleable, uh, uh, sustainable. Because um, in a $45 oil world, our cost structure need to look different. Our way that we run the company has to look different. And so that's where Sussel 2.0 comes in, where we've announced um, a program where we're going to reset the company fundamentally. And that program is an execution. We will give the market an update on the 2nd of December during an investor update to give you exactly the metrics that we are pursuing in cost savings, in free cash flow, in terms of uh, capital spend, and as well as then in working capital that contribute to freeing up cash flow. So if we, just, if we just go back a little bit, because Peter, I hope we can hear you now. Yeah, we can. Yeah, the thrust of his question was that return on capital has been falling. You said, Pete, for 20 years? Consistently for 20 years, yeah. So, so if I can rephrase the question, and, and I know uh, Fleetwood, the uh, the share price decline happened to coincide with your tenure as a CEO so far the past. But I think it's got nothing to do with that. The share price decline that we've experienced over the past year has everything to do with previous management teams, successions of previous management team making poor investment decisions. 
And I think it lays when the blame lies at the foot of the board, because the board sets the strategy of the business, after all, and it was a strategy of the business to consistently expand during good times and then to contract and sell assets during bad times, which is exactly what's happening right now. Uh, so, so I think that is the criticism. It's not aimed at you personally or your team because you guys are, have only been there for a year. It's not, it's not your fault. So I don't, that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that consistently over time, different management teams have made the same type of decisions leading to a decline in the return on equity from 30% in the early 2000s to by 2016, 2017, 4 or 5%. That is the crux of the problem. And it took the market a long time to realize that. And I think COVID accelerated, as with everything else in the world, COVID just accelerated what was already happening. So, so, so my question actually is, what, and you've explained very well what you've done in the short term as emergency measures almost, but what happens in the long term? How do we trust the management team and the board of Sassel to take long-term sound strategic capital allocation decisions. I think that, that is the argument yeah. um, that I'm no, trying Pete, to put forth. No, I, and, and the argument well uh, put forward, and I, I want to reflect on it. And as I've said, that turning point about the board and management taking long-term decisions, that has already occurred. We already see this is the fourth year going into that trajectory when we said on 2017, our capital allocation framework will look like this. And you have to, to draw the line in the sand and say, okay, Sassel, Sassel board, Sassel management, what have you done since 2017 and how does that trajectory now put you on a path of, um, of, of credibility and, and, and delivery? And I think that's, that's the conversation that you need to, to rather yeah. have than, than the, you know, what, what is happening now and are they to do it? They've yeah. done it. They've done it in 2017. But if that's the case, okay. why then did they change the CEO? Why did the board change the CEO? I think that's a question that you need to ask the board. Um, I did not, uh, you know, uh, do any any of those decisions or part of that. But I can only say that, uh, you know, I've got the job and I've got something to do, and that's what I'm busy doing with my team. Lots of questions uh, here from the community. Um, Shaman Prem asks, uh, when would you expect dividends to shareholders of Sassel to return? Yes, I think that's a very valid question. We said that we will have to get our balance sheet in order. We need to pay down debt. We, we're having solid plans to do that. Uh, of course, the divestiture program, as well as our own measures that we've announced, are all contributing to that. And if the, if the trajectory is going as we see it going, barring any second wave of COVID impact on, on demand and oil price going back to to the 30s, I think we would see that our financial year 22-23 is the time that we will start paying dividends again. We have the challenge that this year definitely I don't foresee. It's not my decision. The board still need to decide on that. But but this financial year is very unlikely that we'll pay dividend. But the year thereafter, I think we will recover and uh, consideration will be given to return money to shareholders. Again. So this financial year is until June 2021. Correct. thereafter Correct. you're looking at. David, your question? I think I think I want to carry on from where Pitt was and uh, because I'm not a great investor in commodity companies and uh, you know one's got to look at Sassel as a as a company that relies heavily on the oil price on on commodity on chemical prices I mean how how can you 
make decisions against the backdrop of, uh, of a very, very volatile oil price. And the question, I know that you've used $45, so the question is really looking ahead. Um, you did mention that you see a sunset for uh, you know, liquid fuels, and also the other one was on your uh, ethane fracking. You know, you, you went there because ethane was becoming so cheap because of fracking. So my question to you is, is, is threefold, you know. Um, number one, the sunset liquids, um, sunset uh, uh, fuels, you know, uh, sorry, the, the, the fuel price there. How do you see that unfolding in a very difficult situation now where uh, it's, it's all over the place? The other is, of course, um, how are you taking on uh, your, uh, you know, fracking in in the U.S. under the election at the moment? What's your view on that? And and then just a quick one on on renewables. I mean, was it something that you, having been in the energy game, that you ever considered um, looking at as an investment uh, outlook? Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, that's all good questions. So um, so in terms of 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 looking at um, where um, liquid fuels is going, you have to take into consideration also where you are located, and um, and we are still classified as a developing country, and therefore the motor vehicle fleet that we operate in Southern Africa is much more aged compared to anywhere else in the world. You can't compare us to the US or the European setup in that sense. So you have to also then immediately say when you see the sunset of liquid fuels coming in, um, it will be also have a geographical consideration as it plays out. And therefore, you know, the, the electrification and the infrastructure and maybe other mobility means um, would not be first in a developing world. It will be first in the first world as it as, as it's per definition going to play out. And we accept that and we understand that. Um, if I if I look at the projections that people are saying that it's sort of peak plateauing and then declining, that could happen in the period 2030 to 2040. Does that mean that we can't sell any liquid fuels as Sasol in South Africa? No, I don't think so because I think, you know, as I've described the, the the motor vehicle fleet and I see the the decline, there would be still a solid demand. I mean, we supply about 30 just over 30% of the country liquids fuel needs. And therefore, all of that won't just uh, disappear in a, in a very short period of time. However, having said that, it would be irresponsible to think that the world will go on and on like that if, if it is in a plateau decline for liquid fuels. And so we as Sasol have to think about what is next? What is our plans to play uh, a role in the energy world post 2030, whenever that date of turning is? And, and therefore, we are looking at um, new and exciting areas of how can we bring in more gas into South Africa? How can we have a just transition over time from coal to, to gas? How can we play a leading role in the hydrogen economy? I think we are one of the biggest uh, producers of grey hydrogen at the moment, which is momentarily produced and then converted in our fisher drops process into products, uh, chemicals and fuels. And, and that may be an exciting opportunity going forward. So renewables per se as a player in just making solar power through wind and, and solar panels is, is one thing. But how to take it a step further and get something that you can really work in an energy situation like hydrogen, I think that is what is exciting. And Sasol being a 
technology uh, and a technical company, I think we can we can play a, a role in that landscape and also in South Africa being a, a part of, of that. We As we're stepping up to that uh, challenge, we are already contributing and, and leading the, the hydrogen um, roadmap that the government is is piloting at the moment and developing so i think you know they, they're exciting times beyond only liquid fuel so so having said that coming back david to your other question with respect to ethane now ethane is a byproduct of uh, non-gas liquids that come out in the pursuit of natural gas which is methane as well as tight oil which is the crude oil that is that is used in in the u.s as as oil um, input and so um, the ethane is a co-product of that process it comes out as they frack and they get the gas and the liquids out one of the components is ethane and so we believe that the u.s um, energy landscape will still continue to to get uh, further shale gas because they need the energy they need the natural gas they need some of the liquids for their own use and balance um, in terms of import export in terms of that sweet spot so we believe that ethane would still continue to be available as a very uh, competitive feedstock in that region and we don't see whatever election play out would make any difference in the energy balance in the us now the rate of which it at which it happens could be impacted by politics but i think fundamentally energy is um, is the driver here rather than than politics and i do think that the world and the globe needs more energy the form of energy that it consumes is, is the question where will it be will it be less coal more gas will it be more renewables energy needs is a big need out there so yeah that that's all good and i think on your last question with respect to to renewables where do we play i think i've touched on that our bias would be more towards the hydrogen part of that I pulled up a, a graph here from our partners at the Wall Street Journal um, where they uh, – it's a, it's a graph on ExxonMobil. There it is. Now you can see it in front. This is a graph going back 10 years. ExxonMobil, as you know better than, than I, they've decided that renewables are bunk and that they're going to continue to go in the direction that they have. And the market has really punished them. It used to be the, the biggest market cap company in the world, over $100 a share just five years ago. And it's now sitting at, uh, well, around $35 at the moment. I suppose that shows you uh, what the market thinks. But what if they write? What if ExxonMobil actually are going to going to have the, right, the correct approach in the future and everybody else is going to be wrong? Yeah, I think, Alec, you, you have to look at all of those graphs. You look at BP, you look at Shell, you look at Exxon. And they have got quite a, a big portfolio of upstream business as well. And, and so Sasol um, is not in that game. We don't have the deep pockets to go and explore for oil in the North Sea or in the south, southern uh, uh, you know, um, parts of the world in deep sea locations. So we, we, we see ourselves as a bit of a different um, company in that regard. But your point fundamentally is where is energy going and how are these big companies responding? You saw... BP with Bernard Looney announcing uh, in the last month their new strategy, much more focused in terms of uh, renewables. The market punished them as well. It didn't, yeah. it didn't help the share price. No. You can see there, it keeps falling. Yeah, mm. so I mean, it's 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 all out there till we get a bit of a clarity. Where is the trajectory and where's value going to be added? And what is the competitive advantage that a company has to bring really sustained 
profits to the table. And I think the jury is a bit out as it transitions now between the older energy base to a newer energy base. And we'll have to play the best of our ability in that space and make sure that we can, you know, harness that. Tough neighborhood that you're in. Uh, a question here, which I'm sure both of our, uh, our market watchers are interested in getting the answer of as well, it comes from Alistair Stalker. And he says, as the largest CO2 point source polluter on the planet, I'm not sure that's right, but you can tell us, what is Sassel intending to do in response to terms of offsets, et cetera? So we've got a comprehensive focus on how we can navigate the path to decarbonize our South African uh, economy with respect to energy. And so we have announced uh, a 10% reduction by 2030, at least 10%. We know that that is a, is a tough ask for a highly, uh, uh, highly pinpoint uh, pr production of, of CO2 through our official Trops coal process. Um, and so the, the, the quest that we have is how to reduce it significantly. And at the moment, we are working up plans so that we can, by next year, advise and, and, and share our 2050 ambition of where we're heading. It would be premature for me to venture anything right now. What is that goal eventually? You hear many companies that's talking about net carbon zero. Um, and you hear some that has got certain percentages that they're focusing on. We in that phase to to assess and to calibrate and make sure that what we can put out there is going to be feasible, practical, and that we can deliver on that. And then you need to consider also the tr just transition. And as you know, the Paris Accord has got also a, a carbon peak plateau and then re reduction, and South Africa is signatory to that. And we as Sassel play within that umbrella and we will also calibrate how we deliver our part of that commitment according to the Paris Accord. David, if you and Pete, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to just pick up on, on this story, which is the share price itself. Uh, it has been incredibly turbulent over the recent, um, well, the recent few months. Dave, we've spoken about the share mm -hmm. price a few times. And I, I'd love to know when you're sitting inside Sassel, and uh, you are watching one day it goes down to 22 Rand, which the market cap, you, you could almost uh, want to go and buy the company yourself. Uh, how, how, did, how did you react at that time? How, what happened inside the organization when does it, does it dis or affect or destroy morale? I think it's a, it's a very, very interesting um, phenomena. So um, management, you know, has got a, a very um, interesting task okay. through times of share price uh, volatility. So what management can do is to deliver on what they said they're going to deliver and get credibility and trust back in the company. That's that's at the heart of it. So so what we, we shared with our employees, and I've been uh, very regularly in contact, global webcast, and interacting with everyone in the company to to give them a message of, we have announced plans. We've got decisive measures that we're busy with. Our job is to deliver on that. The share price, we can't influence through anything we do but delivery of what we committed. But the share price was telling you you're going bankrupt at one stage. And very esteemed, very smart people were selling shares in the 20s, saying Sassel is, is, is gone. Yeah. And that's where, <laughs> that's where we as, as leadership have to step in. And that's what we said. Look. This is this is a real 
disaster unfolding if we don't take decisive action. And I think that's what we've done. 17th of March, we took the first step of decisive actions. Bit? No, actually, I, I think there was a real risk of Sasol going bankrupt because the debt stays the same, and if uh, and if the oil price goes negative and goes down a lot, the earnings decline a lot, and if you can't service the debt, the equity is worthless. And there was a real risk of that happening at that time. Um, so I think anybody who sold the shares at 22 Rand was not being irrational. They were managing a real risk of bankruptcy. Um, I think the actions that Fleetwood and his team have taken since then have have, uh, have removed that risk. I think that's highly unlikely at this point in time. Um, but, you know, that's a point in time, uh, you know, for me as an investor, that, that's been done. It's, it's more about the 5 to 10 to 20-year view uh, and how Sassel's management team and the board is going to express that strategy. I mean, because... If you're managing a business, I think you're managing risks rather than trying to forecast the future. And I don't know where the oil price is going to be. I'm sure Fleetwood and his team of analysts also don't know where the oil price is going to be. But I think there's a real risk that the oil price is in five or ten years' time is very much higher than it is today because oil companies are not investing in exploration. Nobody is spending a cent on any exploration activities anywhere. Uh, and that is a Typical capital cycle environment in the commodity world where a lack of exploration leads to high prices later on and vice versa. When prices are high, everybody's exploring, everybody's finding new resources and that creates new production and lower prices. I, yeah, so that's the cycle. And I think that is, for me, the biggest risk that Sassel needs to manage is what happens if the oil price goes to $200? Because I think that's a bigger risk than the oil price staying at $40 I, I, next year. I don't think he'd mind that one too much. Somehow, yeah. Or shareholders wouldn't. Yeah, yeah Peter, I, I think, you know, and, and as, as normal um, cycles play out, which you, you described there, and you're 100% correct, the point is if the world change and that cycle is taking five or ten years longer, I don't know. What we need to do is to make sure that we are we are can handle that um, aberration and that we can be viable and cash positive and having uh, you know uh, a company that can pay dividends and flourish. So we are preparing ourselves for that lower oil scenario. But the point is, if there's upside on it, it's in everyone's interest that we have reset the company to a real competitive lean business that can weather these aberrations are upset in oil price. But when there's upside, I think everyone is going to see it as a very, very big, big, um, you know, sort of, I would say, positive. Uh, I don't I don't want to predict anything, but when that happens, there's very much upside. And then take the RAND uh, as well. I, What's your yeah, view I, on I, the I, RAND? I, Would that weaken or strengthen? My, my, my view on the RAND, the same as the view on the oil, I don't know. Um, I think one just has to manage the risk. I, I guess the biggest risk is when oil goes if, not when, if oil goes to say $200, for instance, picking out a number, what stops Sassel from investing in oil production facilities at that time? Because obviously then those, those sort of things will be massively profitable and there will be a huge um, drive to invest in those sort of things because that is what the market will want at that time. So what stops you from then investing in that sort of uh, uh, production facility? That's the key for me. Yeah, so so you have to keep in shares and the Yeah. No, maybe it's better to buy back shares at the time. But but the, the point yeah. Yeah. the point is that to replicate a coal to product value chain via Fisher Trops 
is really capital intensive and it goes with the greenhouse gas footprint. So I think when, when, um, when you look at that, I think our strategy has been very clear. We will not invest in Greenfield's new refinery or, or gas to liquids capacity. We have to see how we can play a role in those times to make sure that we bolster our position to be better off in terms of where we do have a very solid right to succeed and where do we put our money in that time. Because again, Pete, I, I, with all due respect, I don't think the world will see a continual $200 oil price for many yeah. years. It may be a peak uh, for a period, but, but I don't think it will be a sustainable long-term uh, outlook. There's a question here um, referring to any plans to get rid of Sassel Place building in Santon as you downsize. <laughs> I, I, what, I, what I can say, we are looking at, at optimizing the building. We, we don't need the, the total space that we have. And so I would, uh, I would favorably consider uh, co-tenants co uh, in the building, but that's a process that we're busy with. So will we walk away from the building? No, I think the consolidation has been uh, very, very solid in terms of how we saw the benefits of that. Will we use the total space? Probably not. Are there opportunity to optimize? Yes, there are. Willem van Skalkwijk, the last question from the community. He says, good reaction first time around, but what would happen to the share price should the oil price collapse again? So the, the inverse of what Pete was saying earlier. Yeah, and I think that that is what we are, are getting ourselves uh, prefer, uh, uh, prepared for. So we've got a, a solid hedging uh, policy now to hedge oil prices. And we've hedged out till um, the middle of next year for the best part of this financial year. Um, and we have just in the recent um, past week, we have announced our business performance metrics. And in that, uh, we also published what is the situation with respect to our oil price aging program. So I can I can just uh, share with you. So um, the, the hedges are in place protecting us for a downside below, I think, $36, $37 to the barrel. So, uh, so we, we've got a, a risk uh, mechanism to help us protect us if that happens in the near future this year. So that also protects a little more about going bust, Pete. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that's good. That's, uh, as long as it's uh, implemented consistently, I think that's a good strategy. David, last question for you before we let uh, Fleetwood leave us. I, I haven't. I've just been fascinated by the discussion. I just have to declare my interest to Fleetwood. Um, I am an invest. I am a member of the investment committee on the Cecil Pension Fund. He might not know that, but <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and and I have to make a declaration that uh, um, although it's separate from Cecil, it's a superb, superb um, investment committee. And the one thing that is being run you know, very, very well has been that you know from from the time that Robbie Robertson took over to Andres at the moment. And I enjoy it immensely, and I've learned an enormous amount, as I have today. And I know we're running out of time, but Alec, I think that Fleetwood has covered so many issues that are, you know, just uh, um, on the whole oil industry and the backdrop to, um, you know, to where they are at the moment. I know I loved what Pitt said because that's the very problem that that one has when you run a commodity company that you have no idea where the oil price is going to go. And remember when it was $100, how Goldman Sachs told us that it was going to go up to 250 
and uh, everybody believed Goldman Sachs and wanted to do it went the other way around all the way back to 50. But uh, you know, those are the issues that um, that Anglo-American, that BHP Bulletin, that Glencore, and all of those have fallen short in actually handling, uh, especially yeah. after the uh, commodity cycle, the super cycle came to an end, the Chinese yeah. super cycle. So I know where Pitt comes from, but I, I just uh, I just want to thank Fleetwood for for really sharing his thoughts with us and you know giving us so much to understand. And uh, you know, thank you. Yeah. And well this done, Alec. This is another really good program. <laughs> well, David, you make it so. But does Cecil Pension Fund own the Cecil Head Office? We do. <laughs> so are you happy to have heard what you did a moment ago, that Cecil isn't going to renege on its rent? No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant building. Absolutely yeah. brilliant, you know, brilliant. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Alec, and, and I think what, what is also for us, uh, you know, we, we would like to succeed. We, we really have got a, a vision for the company to, to be restored as, it's, uh, as, a, as a blue chip share in the, in the, in the industry and, and in South Africa, JSE. And we're working hard on that. And I think what, what is also very heartening is when, when you do see coverage in press giving the national companies uh, a bit of a chance to succeed and not to be beaten up every time that something comes up the people are going for the negative part of the messaging oh. i think we 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 we've gone through a beating yes we have we've taken that now but we also need a bit of a helping hand to stand up and and change the narrative in the country as well to get a bit more positivity going in terms of the economic recovery plan of, of of the president and we are part and parcel of that we want to play that role and um, it does help if everyone you know pushes to get people up again after they've fallen and uh, and we're definitely standing up at the moment so help us to get into the, I, I the full stance hmm. that, that's a great idea Fleetwood. maybe you should invest 12 billion dollars into south africa maybe that'll be a good idea <laughs> Ooh, Thanks, ouch. <laughs> if it was his choice, he would have done it. He told me that earlier. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. Uh, thank you very much, Pete. I think that was very good. I really enjoyed that, Pete. Thank you. Just, just to close off, uh, Pete, would you be buying the shares now? No, I think it's still early days. I think uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but it's definitely a share that's on the watch list that we are watching. There's no doubt about that. Well, that's a lot more positive than the way you opened, uh, David. From your side, are you? You're on. I've got a, t a target seventy to eighty. Mm. That's uh, in that region. Uh, rand. <laughs> oh, target down. Not, so we're not seventy to just, eighty rand. Then you're a buyer. Yeah, we, we're heading that way, and that's you know that will be the base. I think um, it will get rid of all those weak shareholders that that uh, you know ran it up to one hundred and fifty. Uh, who should never have done that all those uh, actually there's a wonderful article in the economist this week about fintech and about all the youngsters who are playing the markets now <laughs> well worth understanding <laughs> and that's where all the money that's uh, the baby boomers are going to leave to their children so you've got to understand how they think anyway we're going to publish a bloomberg business week uh, article that we have rights to about exactly that your good friends at uh, at robin hood uh, who mm -hmm. also played the Cecil share price for a period of time. But gents, thank you very much for uh, for all the participation today. It's it's as always been a, a, a real privilege and a pleasure uh, to be coming to you from the Business Studio here at 
um, WeWork in Stanton. Uh, having our in-studio guest uh, was, was, an, was a real pleasure and uh, look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place next week. Until then, cheerio.